Open your Bibles to Matthew 6 as we come back to what's been a very fruitful study of the Sermon on the Mount uh, over the last couple of months. And today we uh, approach the end of this uh, chapter and actually in verse 19, I guess more the middle of the chapter, to hear a message that I think is very important for us as a church, really, and as a, as a people who are living in modern culture. D.A. Carson tells the story of growing up in Canada and the special appeal that he would feel whenever he came across a field of freshly fallen snow, how it was always so dry and powdery, not wet and sticky and And uh, when it covers a field like that in the sense that you are the very first person to put your mark on that snow, it gives a kind of special satisfaction, he says, as you walk along the way and gaze back at your steps. But he says it's a curious thing, as he has found, that as you do that, you look at your feet and you make your way across Looking behind you, you realize that your path has been somewhat meandering and erratic. But then if you fix your eye on some object at the other side, some tree, some rock, and walk straight toward that object, you get the satisfaction of looking behind and finding that your footprints are remarkably straight. It's a great illustration of a great and important principle of focus. Focus on a goal and especially a spiritual goal because there are so many who launch out in their spiritual lives and only to find that they have fallen in all kinds of erratic patterns or inconsistent patterns in their spiritual life. Some even reach the point where they feel almost lost They wonder how they veered off so far, how they lost their appetite for spiritual things, how their love for God seems so diminished. So many people launch out in their Christian life intending to walk a straight pathway in pursuit of God, but now they look behind them and find that their whole life is a meandering mess, full of inconsistency, full of unfaithfulness full of compromise. How does it happen? How do you get to where you are? And more importantly, can you do anything about it now? Can you get back on the right path? Can you straighten out your pursuit of God for whatever time He has remaining for you on this earth? Well, the answer is yes, you can, and the secret to that, we might say, is found in this passage for us this morning, Matthew 6, verses 19 through 24. It's a passage about living with the right focus, all about making the right choices and establishing the right values and pursuing the right goals and staying on the right pathway. Listen to what Jesus says here in verse 19. Going down through verse 24, he says, Do not lay for yourselves, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now, it's pretty clear reading that Jesus is presenting to us a number of contrasts here, a number of choices, a choice, we might say, between the right and the wrong treasure, a choice between the right and the wrong light, and a choice between the right and the wrong master. 
And it serves as a kind of warning about making the wrong choice. The, the, the uh, choosing, we might say, the wrong tre- treasure or choosing the wrong light or choosing the wrong master somewhere along the way in your life. This is where so many Christians find themselves drifting from their original devotion. They get their focus, if you will, distracted off of the right things or the right ways. And as we can see from this verse, very often the distraction involves the pursuit and the accumulation of wealth, money, luxuries, values, we might say, in this life. And the issue, of course, is not money itself. The issue is the focus on money, the overriding concern of money, the love of money, Because there are a few things in this world as powerful as money to steal your love from Christ. But in this passage, Jesus equips us to expose those subtle seductions of wealth and refocus our hearts on treasures that really satisfy. Treasures that truly satisfy your your soul. Now, to begin with, you'll notice in verse 19, he gives us this warning about seeking the wrong treasure. A warning about seeking the wrong treasure or laying up for yourselves treasures on earth versus laying them up in heaven. And what he's challenging you to do is to establish a sort of a comparative value system that will help you set the right priorities for your life. This is naturally what we do all the time, we might say, in this worldly realm. We evaluate things, we evaluate investments based on their sort of return, whether they are, at least in an investment way, whether they are a depreciating or an appreciating asset. Is it something that will lose value over time or something that will increase in value? And of course, there are all kinds of variables that impact that. Things like wear and tear, things like inflationary influences, the cost of living, sometimes which outpaces the value of the dollars that we might save. Or in some cases, the value of something might be impacted by its relevance, especially in the age of technology, things like tube TVs or, or uh, rotary phones or even landlines in general, those things They don't necessarily diminish because of wear and tear, just loss of demand. And so simple economics of supply and demand, all of those things, we see the value of that that we possess just disappear. And even our most secure assets, like our houses, they wear out. They get outdated. In some cases, there even is oversupply. And so we see their value drop. Jesus mentions some of the factors that would impact investments, particularly in his own day. He talks about moth and rust destroying. Uh, Those are natural factors that eat away. Literally, in the case of moths, eat away your clothing, which in those days would have been significant. Values, uh, excuse me, fashions of clothing didn't change from from uh, month to month and year to year or season to season like they do in our time. And so clothing was often valued primarily based on its durability, its, its ability to last season after season and year after year. Some people would invest in clothing that was made from fine uh, threads and silk or, or, or wool. And of course, before the industrialized age, each one of those garments were produced with a tedious process that involved cleaning the fur or the wool, spinning it by hand into fibers, weaving or knitting those fibers together into a garment. The wealthy would take those and sometimes pay for special processing to make them either brilliantly white or in some cases they would be dyed with very expensive dyes, things that have been extracted from roots or berries or leaves or bark, fats or oils from animals. And because all of this was so difficult, because making clothing in those days was so 
sort of tedious and painstaking, these garments would be kept and they would be passed down from generation to generation. They'd be cherished. But all that effort, all that value in all these garments could be eaten away by these tiny little insects, these little moths which were so tiny and insignificant they could be crushed in the fingers of a child. And yet these tiny forces could literally chew away the wealth that you thought that you had in these garments. Jesus also mentions rust, a Greek word brosis, which basically means eating, and it can certainly refer to the corrosion that comes from rust, but it could also refer to the destructive influence of any kind of eating pest, worms and larvae and mice and varmin, which could devour the short-term storehouses of grain that people would keep in those days. Or if it was rust, it could refer to the rust eating away at your durable tools, your shovels and your axes and your plows. Or in some cases, even their coins, which were cast with bronze or silver, would have admixtures, sort of impurities of iron that were in there and literally would be eaten away by decay, causing the coins to lose their weight and consequently to lose their value. And of course, even if none of that were to ever affect you, there were always the threat of thieves, he says, who break in and steal. Or in those days, they would dig. The houses were made mostly of some sort of clay, a baked clay structure. And so people with a sharp enough instrument could literally just dig a hole in your wall and take what they wanted of your stuff. But the point that Jesus is making is that no matter what your investment, no matter how secure, no matter how durable you think it might be, in this realm there are so many forces that are constantly threatening whatever you think it is. Natural forces, there are corrosive forces, there are corrupt forces of thievery. As I said, there are inflationary forces. And as most of us go through life... We are going to suffer the consequences, at least to some extent, of what those forces are. We're going to suffer loss in those natural treasures. But Jesus contrasts all this in verse 20 with laying up treasures for yourselves in heaven. Where he says, neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. And when you think about it, when you evaluate this, as Jesus is laying it out here, very clearly, the better investment, if you were to compare investments on earth and investments in heaven, very clearly, the better of the two investments would be investments that are made in heaven, where you lay up for yourselves treasures that can't be corrupted, they cannot decay, they will not, as Peter says, fade away. Thieves will not break in and steal them. They'll never lose their value because of economic forces. They'll never go away because of irrelevance. They'll never fade away because of lack of demand. Treasure, treasures you lay up in heaven are going to provide, in other words, more sure, more profitable, better returns, greater long-term satisfaction than anything that you could ever lay up on this earth. And so for, from a comparative value perspective, there's really no contest in these two kinds of investments. When you evaluate them based on all the potential threats and all the potential risks and all the potential dangers that could come, it ought to be clear that we ought to be making our efforts to lay up for ourselves treasures in, in heaven. Don't mistake this, by the way, as if Jesus is condemning all earthly possessions. He's not condemning wealth any more than he's condemning clothing. I mean, the fact that your clothing can be eaten by moths is not a reason to run around naked, right? And the fact that you have material things that can lose their value is not a reason to take a vow of poverty. When Jesus is talking here, when he's giving the dangers about all this, He's not suggesting 
that you shouldn't make adequate preparations along the way for your family, even for your future. As a matter of fact, in Proverbs 6, we're encouraged to study the behavior of the ant who we're told considers her ways, uh, excuse me, we're told to consider her ways and be wise because she prepares her food in the summer and gathers her bread for the harvest. In other words, it's wise to make plans for the future. It's, it's, it's celebrated to have that kind of industry, that kind of self-discipline, that kind of foresight, that kind of preparation for the future. That's something that we ought to aspire to. In fact, in Timothy, Paul tells us that the person who doesn't make provision for their own family, even for in that particular case, 1 Timothy chapter 5, even for their aging parents, providing for them in the years to come. The person who doesn't provide for their own family, he says, is worse than an unbeliever. So we have to plan for the future. We have to think about how we'll provide long-term for our families. And in fact, the Scripture speaks about this with great, uh, great clarity. And even along the way, it reminds us that the things God gives us, He gives us by way of blessing and intends us to take joy in them. First Timothy 4, everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. First Timothy 6, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty nor set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So the scripture is not against the enjoyment of things which God provides. The scripture is not against provisions for the future. And of course, we know numerous examples in scripture about wealthy people who served God and were faithful to him throughout all their days. The issue that Jesus is getting at is not what you possess. The issue is what possesses you. It's what grabs your heart, and more importantly, what you set your heart on. This is the explanation he gives there in verse 21, the reason he wants us to consider the relative value of the kinds of things you invest in is because whatever you are calculating to have the greatest value is what inevitably will be the focus of your heart and your life. He says in verse 21, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So whatever you're calculating to be uh, uh, what's, what's providing you the greatest return, the greatest value, the greatest asset, will inevitably dominate the focus of your heart. And this is Jesus' real concern. His real concern is the focus of your heart. That as you are launching out and as you are walking through and walking down the course of your Christian life, that you're not looking necessarily at the everyday sort of uh, issues going on, but that you are zero focused on those eternal issues which are most valuable and most important. As I said, his concern is not what you possess, but what possesses you. And he wants you to be possessed by God. He wants you to be consumed with heaven, with eternity. He wants all of your thoughts and all of your attentions and all of your uh, motivation to be dominated by that. Because he understands that the things that you end up treasuring are the things that are ultimately going to govern your heart and govern your mind and govern your time. These are the things that are going to pull at your mind. They're going to tug at your heart all day long. They're going to affect your emotions. They're going to determine whether you are up or whether you are down, whether you are dismayed or whether you're overjoyed. 
Your time and your thoughts are going to be dominated by these things. You're going to spend time researching them, planning for them, daydreaming about them, reacting to whether or not you have achieved them or possessed them or owned them. If it's, a, if it's a new car, you're going to be dominated by that, thinking about that, gazing at that. I mean, I know how it is. You know, you start thinking about something. I, I've purchased a car in the past and I find myself driving down the road and every time I see that car, I slow down, I look, I gaze at it, I think about it, it just... It just dominates your mind or it could be a home it could be a vacation spot it could be a phone it could be a computer it could be anything whatever it is it begins to take over your heart and your mind and your emotions and you gravitate to that in all of those spare moments of your life or maybe your goals are not that particular maybe your goals are just making more money or growing your business or getting a promotion or building your career. But your mind becomes dominated by those earthly returns, those earthly treasures. Now, Jesus wants you to be dominated by things that have the best value, that have the greatest return, the most enduring kind of treasure. The most lasting satisfaction. That's what he wants you to think about. That's what he wants you to evaluate. And those very clearly, undeniably, are treasures in heaven. That cannot be stolen and that will not fade away. He wants our minds and our emotions and our hearts to be dominated by those things. He wants our minds to gravitate through all of that in our spare time. He wants us to be thinking about those things where our treasure is, our heart is there. And so he wants us to begin to evaluate how we are investing and where we're going to put our hopes for the future. Now, what are those treasures? If that is what he wants and those are the valuable things, what are they? What should be dominating our time and our thoughts? Well, he doesn't really define it here. We might assume, since the whole context here seems to be about money, we might assume that he's talking about generosity and giving to the Lord and giving to the needs of others, and that certainly is true. The Scripture would affirm that. The scripture tells us that the one who is generous to the poor lends to the Lord and he will repay him. Luke 14 says, when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just, Jesus says. So certainly the issue of generosity is one of those things that we ought to value. The issue of just helping those who are in need, or in some cases, just helping with uh, those that are near us, those who are uh, around us, sharing in the, the joys of the blessings that we receive. But to understand that kind of generosity as what Jesus is talking about, is a little narrow. Because the reality is, the Scripture speaks about many, many things that yield eternal rewards. There are great things that generate, we might say, that kind of eternal return. In fact, right here in the Sermon on the Mount, back in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus, you remember, already told us about those who are poor in spirit, inheriting the kingdom of heaven, and those who are meek, inheriting the earth. Those rewards, of course, are promised for every believer. But more specifically, you remember in verse 11 of Matthew 5, Jesus says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you, 
and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So one of the ways of building up these eternal rewards is just having the courage and the fortitude and the steadfastness to endure ridicule and to endure persecution because of your willingness to proclaim Christ. Paul reflects on this in his own sort of ministry whenever he was being ridiculed, when his motives were being questioned, when he was being, if you will, uh, um, attacked unfairly within his ministry. He says this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are transient, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So just bearing up under persecution and ridicule for the sake of the gospel is an investment in eternal rewards. And God wants our minds to be captivated by that truth. He wants us to weigh that in the balance as we face that kind of ridicule. But that's certainly not the end. Even there in chapter 5, Jesus goes on to talk about loving your enemies as something that will generate treasures in heaven. You remember Matthew 5, 46. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? In other words, by implication, there is a reward if you love those who do not love you. Or as Jesus says it more explicitly in Luke 6.35, love your enemies, do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. So you love your enemies, you love those who are unloving, you even give generously to people who are not going to pay you back, they're going to be ungrateful, they're going to take advantage of you. You do all those things in the name of Christ, and you are investing in eternal rewards, he says. Even here in Matthew 6, Jesus indicated that when you pray to your Father who is in secret, your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Again, when we looked at that, we mentioned that the specific rewards Jesus has in mind are not the answered prayers, but they are the eternal rewards that God has in store in His kingdom. So whether it is giving or loving or praying or enduring persecution, all of those things you do, you're laying up treasure in heaven. And we could add to that just... Just evangelism or investing, we might say, in ministry. Luke 16, 9, Jesus tells the parable of an unrighteous steward who used the resources of his master to build his own personal network so that whenever he was cast out of his job, he'd have friends who would take him in. And Jesus draws a principle from that. He says, I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth So when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. In other words, take the resources God has given you and invest them in reaching people for eternity. And when you do that, you will reap the rewards in eternity, the benefit, the treasures. Paul speaks about this in his own work, 1 Corinthians 3, when he talks about how he planted and Apollos watered, but God gave the increase to his work. What he's saying there is that as he labored, particularly among the Corinthians, he was the planter, meaning that he didn't get to see the fruit of his labors. He wasn't there for the harvest. He wasn't reaping all the rewards in this life, but he goes on to say in verse 13, each one's work will become manifest 
For the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test the sort of work that each one has done. And if the work that he has done is built on the foundation that survives, he will receive a reward, he says. He'll receive a reward. He tells the Thessalonians, what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus that is coming? Is it not you? You are our glory and joy. So just simply sharing the gospel, being willing to proclaim Christ, taking the time to bring people into your life, into your home, into your, into your whatever you're doing involving them, for the sake of building bridges and sharing the gospel and ministering to them, all of those things along with giving and praying and, and suffering persecution and loving and all that, all of that stuff is building eternal treasures. And God wants your mind and heart to be consumed with that. He wants your spare moments to be consumed with that. He wants you to be pondering those kinds of things and the opportunity to participate in those kinds of things so that you can reap what is most valuable, what has the greatest satisfaction, the greatest return. Now, again, Jesus doesn't detail exactly what those rewards will be, but we know from other passages We have some sense of what this might be. In Matthew 19, Peter says to Jesus, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus says to him, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you who have followed Me will sit on the twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for My, for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will also inherit eternal life. So certainly the rewards are eternal life but they also include the joys of holiness in a resurrected body and participation in the privileges of serving alongside Christ in His kingdom, reigning and ruling over the nations, and all the practical benefits and the joys of eternal family and houses and lands and increased authority Jesus is assuring you none of that stuff that you're sacrificing, none of those things that you would consider to be earthly treasures and have earthly value, none of those things that you think are lost to you in this world are lost. Every one of them are going to be rewarded. Some of us have followed Christ at great personal cost. We've walked away from families and relationships. We've walked away in some situations from jobs, from networks and connections, from careers, all because of our devotion in Christ. We've denied ourselves. We've crucified ourselves. We've died to ourselves. We've walked away from wealth. We've given up treasures. We've invested our money in the work of the Lord. And whatever we give up, he says, is returned to us in far grander fashion than you could ever imagine. Jesus says all this will take place in what he calls the new world, or some translations say in the regeneration, which is talking about that time when he will sit on his glorious throne, that time which hasn't come yet, but will come in the future. He's telling Peter, you haven't inherited these things yet. We all taste some of the kindnesses of heaven. We all taste some of the joys of serving Christ. But what he's talking about isn't a reality yet, he says to Peter. But it's coming. 
It's coming when Christ will sit on his glorious throne. What's he talking about? He's talking about the millennial kingdom. He's talking about the kingdom when he comes and establishes his throne on the earth. And we take our position, Revelation 5 says, reigning with Christ on the earth. And our rewards are going to be glorious. So the basic point here is that Jesus wants you to focus your mind on the incredible value that's available to you in eternal heavenly treasures. To begin thinking rightly about how you invest your heart, how you invest your time, how you invest your thoughts. How you invest yourself, really. He wants you to fill your mind with thoughts of prayer. With thoughts of evangelism. With thoughts of loving your enemy and loving your neighbor. With thoughts of courage in the midst of persecution. With thoughts of giving. It's interesting if... If you have your Bibles, turn with me over to 1 Timothy chapter 6 because Paul, Paul gets into this in some explicit detail at the end of 1 Timothy chapter 6 where he's giving Timothy instruction about how he should lead, how he should teach those particularly who are seeking earthly treasures. And he talks about those who would set their heart wrongly on the things of the world and the love of money. He begins, you remember, this whole section with a a challenge to those false teachers who try to use their spiritual influence to garner a following and solicit financial support. In verse 5, he talks about these men who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. That is to say, they look at their spiritual life as something that's supposed to yield all kinds of results financially and and materially in this life. But in verse 6, he says they're missing one of the greatest gains that comes from godliness, which is contentment. Godliness, he says, is actually a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. And that contentment, he says in verse 7, comes from the knowledge that we've brought nothing into this world and so we cannot take anything out of it either. And if with food and covering, if we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. So he lays out this profound principle to begin with the recognition that everything that you gain everything you acquire and possess in this world is ultimately something you have to give up it's ultimately something that will either get corrupted and corroded and fade away it'll be consumed if not by yourself by others and even if you're able to accumulate it it's going to provide you nothing Nothing when you die. Because you cannot take any of it, he says, with you. Paul goes on in verse 9. That those, therefore, who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. You hear what Paul's saying here? The same thing that Jesus is saying? The issue is not money itself. The issue is the love of money, the fascination with money, being consumed with wealth, Not necessarily when you possess it, but when it possesses you. Because as you are fascinated by it, as you are consumed by it, 
It plunges you, he says, into all kinds of poor decisions, all kinds of foolish decisions, all kinds of harmful desires. And ultimately, he says, it has caused many to wander away from the faith, to pierce themselves with so many sorrows. Like the person trampling across that field of snow, they find their life veering off course. They find that their spiritual life is no longer the pursuit that it used to be. They feel the emptiness, the lack of fervor for God, the lack of prayer, the lack of evangelism. They feel all of that. And they sense the despair and the emotions that go along with all of the griefs and the pain that are associated with the disappointments over wealth and the lack of it, the greed that grips your heart. They, they feel all of that stuff. And Paul tells Timothy, don't do it. Avoid all that. Encourage other people to avoid all of that. In fact, what does he say down in verse 11? As for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Timothy, let your mind be consumed with those things. When you're not at work any longer, when you're done with your daily chores and you're left to yourself, let your mind drift away to those things. Let your, let your eternal investment, your eternal desires be consumed with those things. That's what God would have gripping your heart. In fact, he says in verse 17, he says, instruct those who are rich in this present world, not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. He he unfolds here what is really a pitfall. He said, those who have been captured by greed become conceited. They become puffed up in their own strength. They become puffed up in their own security. They begin to think that they are, they are unassailable. They begin to think that they don't need God. This goes beyond the inordinate pleasure that they have in their particular indulgences of wearing the finest clothing and driving the finest vehicles and living in the finest houses. The rich actually begin to believe that their money gives them importance, status, favor with God. They begin to think highly of themselves and they forget the essential value of true godliness. They actually think their money establishes their wisdom. Proverbs says the rich man is wise in his own eyes. The poor man utters supplications, but the rich answers roughly. In other words, they run roughshod over people. They're dismissive of others. They are haughty. They begin to deal with people that way and bypass the very virtues that God would have them seek. Humility gentleness, kindness. And Paul says in verse 17, they set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. They seek false security in those riches and those riches can be wiped out in a moment. A health crisis, a corrosion, a theft or whatever it might be. But Paul says to Timothy, 
to remind them that they are to be filled with goodness. Look what he says at the end of verse 17. They're to set their hope on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy and they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, ready to share, he says. Don't let them disregard those eternal things. It's not a sin to have money. God provides that for you to enjoy. But when your money grips you, when your money takes hold of your heart, when you're no longer walking humbly before your God, when you're no longer walking in righteousness, in patience, in love, in generosity, in all those things, when you're no longer willing to share, he says, when the wealth that God has given you isn't spilling over into kindness for people all around you, when all of those things are happening, they, then it's a sure sign your money's taking hold of you. So remind them, he says, to do all this, to be good, to be rich in good works, generous, ready to share. Thus, he says, storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. This is really just kind of unpacking everything that Christ is teaching us in the Sermon on the Mount. There are guaranteed investments, guaranteed returns that far surpass anything that you could ever get in this life. Even some sort of explosive investment that might make you an overnight success, it itself is going to fade away. And whatever you have can't be taken with you. And so he reminds us to invest where God has commanded us to invest. Invest where you're going to find the best return. To leave off all of your greed, to dress yourself with contentment, to realize that the love of money pierces people through with all kinds of sorrow, with all kinds of grief. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where the real value is. And there your heart will be also. Now, you might try to excuse yourself and try to decide, you know, I I understand all that, but I'm just going to make the choice for short-term gains. I know that I'll forfeit in heaven. I I know that I will not have all the rewards that are necessary, but I'm just going to sort of enjoy the things that I can get in this life under the grace of God. Well, if you're that way, there are far greater dangers than simply failing to evaluate the relative benefit of where you lay up your treasures. There are things that are, that are at stake than simply your returns that touch your soul. And Jesus gives us warnings for that in verses 22 through 24 that we'll get to next week. You showed up for whatever reason. Maybe someone invited you, came with a friend, you came with family. And you're honest with yourself enough to say that you don't really think about eternity. You don't really think about heaven. You're just kind of going on from one day to the next, from one day to the next. Listen, the greatest, the greatest reward that God has is not any particular land or house that he'll ever give you. The greatest reward that he will give you is the forgiveness of of your sins and eternal life. And the wonderful thing about that transaction is that He offers it to you free of charge. doesn't require anything of you. 
doesn't ask you to accomplish anything, to do anything. He will grant you eternal life. All you have to do is confess yourself a condemned sinner before God and in desperate need of His mercy. Scripture says, He who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you're here this morning and you want to have the free gift of eternal life, we encourage you, pray that prayer to God. If you want to find out more about how Christ provides eternal life and what that's all about, I encourage you when we're done here, we have a visitor reception down the hallway to the right. Please come and see us. Give us an opportunity to find out how the Lord is at work in your heart and life. Give us a chance to share with you the glories of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the free gift of eternal life. Father, we're so grateful for this morning and this reminder we need it as much as any Christian has ever needed it, as much as any person in the history of the church has ever needed to hear this message, we need to hear it. There are so many calls around us that absolutely consume our heart and mind with the treasures of this world. May we confess that to you today, O Lord, that our heart has not been on the treasures of heaven. And we understand the dangers of that. Lord, we want to fix it there. We want your spirit to prompt us again, to put us back on the pathway, to help us lay aside all that we've burdened ourselves with in the treasures of this life. And may we begin to invest again in those eternal riches for the sake of your name. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.